1: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. BellaCatering.com.au is where you can find Sydney's best catering company. And now they're doing home delivery. Um, check out what they've got. Get to it fast, Sydney. Victoria has already shut down. Which is good. <laughs> they're acting like idiots down in Victoria. But we are no less idiots here in New South Wales. So... My dear friends and listeners and folks, you, of course, have come across folks who are not doing the right thing with COVID-19. You need to contact Bella Catering while you can. Get the people to your house now that you want to visit. Check their temperature before they get in the door. Make sure that they're hand sanitized. Feed them with some delicious Bella Catering food. bellacatering.com.au They are responsible for the show. This week, we must thank them. We must love Glenn and Maria and thank their team and everything they do. Now, let's get on to the show.
2: What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. I speak of peace, therefore, as the necessary rational end of rational men. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants, No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. Man's reason and spirit have often solved the seemingly unsolvable, and we believe they can do it again. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures and we are all mortal.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to all the president's minutes. I'm your host Blake Howard, the 70th episode of this crazy undertaking. And we are steaming into, the in heat. It was the coffee shop scene or the explosive LA bank heist. In Last of the Mohicans, be focused on the climactic moments of that movie. In Increment Vice, I don't know what the pièce the de résistance is there. You'd have to suss out with Travis Woods, a heart of gold on Twitter to see what he feels is... Uh, I think I've got my own. I think that the movie the, the movie crests um, at right at the, in many moments of that film. But we're heading into the bookkeeper scene, which I think is the, one of the pièce résistance scenes of this entire picture. and. What is so important to the lead-up and the payoff of that central scene is every slam door in the face, every thought that they're encroaching to get into this story closer. And I'm so excited because right now this is like literally a red-headed herring moment in this story, and I have someone drastically overqualified to talk about it. Uh, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome a national political correspondence for Reuters, who has covered the White House, Congress, Supreme Court, and continues to cover the absolute chaos of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States. I'm so glad to see that he is alive and well and healthy. James Oliphant, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's minutes.
3: Well, it's great to be here, Blake. Thanks very much uh, for that lovely introduction. Uh, you, uh, you made me sound impressive,
1: which I always appreciate. <laughs> well, if, at the very least, you're, to thank you for your time, uh, I, can, I can say that you're impressive. Uh, it's, it's a crazy time. This is a movie that at the beginning of this project, I thought, wow, wouldn't this be really great to do now as the next cab off the rank of this Minute by Minute podcast to just chart how similar the time feels uh, between, you know, some of our political sort of political and journalistic and historical turmoil that we're feeling. And, and this is more of like an, an abstraction. And now as we're heading into, you know, July and nearly August of 2020, it is, it could not be, it feels like it's ancient history. It feels like it's another world, another universe, maybe even another country that this film is set in. Uh, What's the, what is it like, right now for you being on the front lines of journalism covering politics in america
3: well i think the hardest thing about it blake is that we're really not on the front lines right now because so much of us are forced to work from home and we're not um this is the fourth presidential election in which i've been involved and you know, of course, it's not like any of the other ones. Um, even if Donald Trump was not involved, it wouldn't be like any of the other ones because, I mean, there aren't the campaign rallies. There aren't the, um, you know, there isn't, we're, we're not riding buses and jumping on airplanes and, and we're not seeing, you know, I've seen, I've seen Joe Biden a grand total of one time in the last three months. Um, <laughs> and that is just not the norm for this business. And so a lot of it's on the phone. Um, and a lot of it, uh, and, and, and I would add to that, um, it's much harder to talk to voters. It's much harder to talk to regular people. Yes. And so in the run-up to uh, the Democratic presidential, uh, to Biden winning the nomination, you know, we were able to go to Iowa and New Hampshire and all the early voting states and, you know, figure out what people cared about, you know, what they were thinking about. Um, and now that's just so much harder. It's harder, it's harder to reach random people. Um, you know, virtually, it's just uh, uh, the people who tend to stick out online are the people you probably don't want to talk to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, m- much easier to sort of passively sidle up to someone who's sort kind of quietly going about their business to sort of get the the not loud person opinion.
3: But yeah, the person very- is uh, not a professional opinion giver, if you know what I mean. Like somebody, <laughs> uh, somebody who uh, actually might have some thoughts and be thoughtful, but. Um, also is not, like I said, somebody who lives and dies and breathes as much as Fox or MSNBC every night and tweets and mm-hmm. posts and, um, because you pretty much know where those people stand.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy from that point of view. They're usually wearing the MSNBC or Fox News t-shirt at that point or a red hat with white writing on it that's become so synonymous. I've even seen some MAGA hats in Australia. Really? Yes. And it's, it's just like, what are you doing, is my first question.
3: <laughs> well, it goes to sort of my, you know, my unified theory of Trump, though, which is, you know, is, I mean, uh, for us in the political press, we've driven ourselves crazy for five years trying to sort of explain him. Um, but, you know, he's, a, he's more than anything, he's sort of just a cultural touchstone. And for better or for worse, where people, they feel like he lines up with their view of the world. And other people are repulsed by that. And, um, and then all the other stuff, you throw the policies and you throw the, the behavior and you throw the tweeting and into the mix. But well, ultimately, it really it, it strikes me more than anything is that he is basically just the front in the culture war. And so by wearing a red hat, you're declaring which side you're on. Yes. Wherever you, wherever you live.
1: Yeah. It's, and what's strange is... Uh, if you can try and even be remotely objective about it at the beginning of his campaigning, the the things that made serious people take him seriously, some of the things he was campaigning his platform, not just the wall, but like other things, regulations of like, uh, for example, um, Wall Street, like banking regulatory, like things and things like that. Some of those big financial elements that actually got some significant power players on his, on his side, you look at some of those things that he said that were the most objective and the most like really like diplomatic and actually had a political agenda behind them. And it just all seems like once he got in the office, he, it feels like he thought that it was a big joke and that he was never going to make it. in there. (laughs) And when he arrived in there, it's like, now I have to actually do this. And it just feels like every single day, there's a new stunt. And in this year, that feels like it's 10 years long, 2020 uh, in this year that it feels like it's 10 years long. It feels like, Crazy. I think there was a a meme the other day on the internet and we can say this because these episodes get posted so frequently, you know, you guys are going to be listening to this probably a few days, maybe just under a week after we talk James and I, but I just saw a bunch of people take photos of their beards uh, a, a lot of guys are, and and gals like taking photos of their sort of sideburns and going, "This was my hair in 2019, and this is my hair in 2020." And everyone has got the 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 Obama uh, first first term versus Obama second term, but it's happened in like six months of 2020.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think what's what's interesting about what we're seeing right now, like, is you know, for for years we have sort of said that. You know Trump's Trump's his as he would call him his ratings or you know what we call his approval uh, has always been very stable and um, with even with, with the Mueller investigation with impeachment with whatever controversy of the week you know, Charlottesville whatever you want to whatever you want to pick he always sort of hovered in around the same range it was almost like you know he was locked in and he it's not that he, it's not that he went higher either he just sort of stayed in the same same area and i think now though with the the, the covid with the with this hand with the government's handling of, of the pandemic in the u.s you are seeing some erosion now uh yep. with people who were more inclined to maybe give him a chance and maybe give him a second term well obviously we don't know what's going to happen there's more than three months uh, to go but Now, this is a time where you can feel a sense among uh, the American public. They just, they're not, they don't have any patience for the sideshows right now. And uh, we're in a crisis. They want to see the president manage a crisis. And all the polling that we do tells us that right now he's falling short.
1: It's funny that you say that is I've heard it. I've heard it put in other ways. It's like people want to not care who the president is in the country right now. They just want to be, they want to be pleasantly bored that there's an older person in there just getting on with it and not caring. And in Australia, just as like a, uh, to, to have a little, like a strange mirror is for many years, it started with, it started with uh, our our first female prime minister, Julia Gillard. There was a spill uh, uh, election, which basically means for international listeners who aren't listening, uh, who aren't familiar rather. Um, A spill election means that within the political party in Australia, their own party can vote out who is actually the prime minister because the party is elected. And at the time, Kevin Rudd was our prime minister who was voted in. He was extremely popular, came in after a very, you know, our most enduring prime minister was in there who was a conservative. He comes in, he's more of a liberal, um, Liberal Party is our Conservative Party in Australia. So go figure, he's a Labour representative. Anyway, his party usurp him as the leader of the party and he comes in and that sort of triggered like years of political uncertainty in Australia on both sides of politics where you would vote in someone and then they'd get usurped by their party because they'd lose the faith of the base because broadly a lot of Australian politics like functions on this like weird centrist, sometimes right-leaning thing. And so if you're not, making the right people happy, um, your party can usurp you. And so our prime minister, our current prime minister, Scott Morrison came in on a spill motion where he was like the underdog and spill and won it. And then, so for like a few months in Australia, like people were like, who's our prime minister? And also who cares? And I feel like that sentiment is what a lot of people want to go back to <laughs> in a lot of respects. Cause it's like, if you've constantly got a sideshow and every day's a new tweet, and every day is a new news cycle of nonsense or like some maddening thing. It's just like, I mean, and, and, and at this point I can I can only empathize, but at this point, someone like yourself who has been doing serious journalism about a serious journalistic topic being politics for some time, the outlandish levels of dialogue that you have to even entertain as part of your job at the moment and wade through to get to what the policy is and how it actually impacts the American people must just be like such a, such a slog.
3: Well, you know, and I'm sure we're going to get into this with, with the movie. Um, but you know, the the American media is not without uh, some culpability in all of this. Um, and you know, in terms of favoring spectacle and, and outrage uh, over facts and policy, so yeah, I mean, um, I think you know what you're describing is something that you know we often refer to as trump fatigue, yes, and you know, is it just okay, you know, on the screens all day long on social media? yeah, and we, we we're always wondering, is there going to be a point where you know that America collectively just is like, okay, yeah we'll we'll take you know, we're just, we're, we're exhausted. And um, and so, like I said, we don't know what's gonna happen, but you know, it just, there is just sort of this feeling maybe that maybe we've reached that point where, uh, you know, the country would just like to calm down a little bit and um, deescalate. Not everything has to be trench warfare all the time. Uh, and not everything has to be outlandish and outrageous. And, I mean, what if Trump's great skills in 2016 and getting elected, was tapping into that culture. Yes. You know, a culture of, of, of being aggrieved and being outraged. And he understood the news cycle and how to win it and, and how to, you know, and, you know, as people used to complain, you know, his, his rallies were like, you know, they were aired publicly on CNN and other networks. And um, it, was a, it was a spectacle. It was a show. And he gave people a show. And uh, and he knew what he was doing. And, and the thing is, I mean, that's his. He's still trying to do that now, but um, it's not four the years later, it's not the and time. it's just not. You know, um, it's like a the comed- sequel. The sequel is never as good as the original, <laughs> they, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, except for oh, Godfather Two and uh, you know, uh, the second Superman. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I was just going to say the 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 major thing is comedians talk about it all the time. Like you have an act and you have an hour and when you're a showman, ultimately that's what you're doing. Like you you have an act and a a lot of contemporary comedians and the, you know, some of the greats, the priors and the Carlins, and, and, um, and, and the Chappelle's of the modern age, like you do your hour, you do your act, you tour it around the country and then you have to jettison it to create a new hour. And, And, and it feels so, Like I I feel like in 2016 paired with the outrage as a spectacle and now it is just so tiresome and it's complete. It's like misfire after misfire. It's like we get the shtick, man. It's done. Like we are so done with this shtick. We don't need it anymore. And so then we hurry back. Like I'm making you do today. We hurry back to 1976 and to this movie, uh, All the presidents, men, and we go back and look at a time when a president had shame. (laughs) Something. (laughs) Well, the
2: shame, the shame (laughs) came,
3: the shame came late. Yeah. Uh, And I just, for the record, I want to say I was alive, but I was not in journalism in 1970.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I I wasn't, I wasn't alive at the time, but also that the, the hangover of this, you know, seems to impact. I think it's like that in the '80s, post Vietnam, there was like that fake. I feel like it was like a fake haze like after the after World War Two, that peace and prosperity internationally and the rebuilding of society and like people just being so, you know, tired of war and tired of death and tired of that, that sort of plague that had affected Europe and then spread its tendrils throughout the world you know, that peace and prosperity is like a genuine, but I think in the eighties, that's like the the Reagan fakery of it all. It's like, Oh, the war's over and we're good. And it's time for prosperity, but there's still a lot of the undercurrent of issues that sort of simmered away there. And then, and then didn't take as long to rear their head again. Um, But I feel like uh, that's, you know, going back to 1976 and having a look at this and like facts and policy and journalism on the ground and looking at, you know, being able to have a dial, a moral dialogue with people on both sides of the aisle is like a holiday compared to what you're waiting through every day. I imagine on Twitter and, 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 and just seeing, seeing manifest all around the world at the moment.
3: Well, Watergate does feel like one of, and maybe the last or one of the few, um, you could maybe put the Iraq war in there. Uh, where there was a bipartisan ultimately there was a bipartisan sense of outrage at the president's behavior yes where where you know a feeling that nixon was acting in contravention of the nation's morality and its yes. values and and yes it took the republicans lar- longer to come around um but they did and that's why he resigned and, you know, it was the sense that there was a common set of values. There was, there was something, there was a standard to uphold. Yes. And it wasn't a standard that to be applied on a partisan basis. And, uh, and of course, there's been partisanship through this country since its founding. But, um, it, you know, it was, it was a matter of, uh, uh, of the legislative branch of government rising up and saying enough um, with this president and reining him in holding him accountable. And the media was a big partner in that, obviously.
0: Um, And it was a media,
3: you know, that was much smaller, much more concentrated and you know, it was a much different time where the media was much more influential.
1: Yes. Well, I'm going to put you into the, the chair, the boots of these guys, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, Robert Redford, and Dustin Hoffman. And we're going to dive into a scene where on the grind, going through phone books, looking up addresses, trying to find people they feel like for the first time, they're being welcomed into someone's home. Obviously spoilers for those people who are 70 minutes into all the president's minutes listening, you know, that that's not the case, but it's a nice little red herring reprieve moment for the film. And I think it's important because sometimes uh, I really love this scene because it just feels like a false platitude. It feels like a not, it feels like articulating the false platitude that sometimes things happen. And it's just nice to go, Oh, well, there's a nice little false platitude that means nothing. <laughs> Ultimately. Thank you very much. But it's, it's good to see at least for them, they're going up to someone who maybe doesn't have an opinion who is reading and consuming everything. And it's, it's actually a really interesting dialogue with the audience as well. So James and I, I'm now gonna go and watch this, the 70th minute of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. We're gonna come back and talk about it with you after a minute.
3: I'm Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, We're from the
2: Washington Post.
0: Yes, I've read what you've written. I wanna thank you. I've been a Republican all my life, but this goes beyond party politics.
2: Would you mind if we asked you a few questions?
0: No, no, come in. Would you like coffee? Sure. Well, what they've done is a threat to the Constitution. It goes against everything we stand for.
2: Could you be a little bit more specific than that?
0: I'm afraid your articles have just scratched the surface.
2: You don't mind if I just take a few notes, do you? No. How long have you worked at the committee?
0: Committee?
2: Yes, the uh, committee to re-elect the president.
0: Oh... Oh, no, I don't work at the committee to reelect the president. I work at Garfinkel's in the accounting department. Miss Abbott? Yes.
2: Judith Abbott? There
1: it is.
3: I- yeah, you know, um, the funny thing about it is, is Blake, when you first um, approached me to be on this show, my first thought was, wow, what minute am I going to get? <laughs> and, um, And I thought, okay, well, you know, I'd really like, I think it's around the 60th minute. I think that's when you first reached out to me. I'm like, oh, I love that Ben Bradley scene, you know, where he's like, you know, you need some luck, get some, you know, it's like, oh, that's such a great, that's such a great newsroom scene, you know, and I'd really love to talk about that. And then you told me my minute and I'm like, oh, I get the Garfinkels. the 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 one true red herring in the whole bunch but i think that's actually a great opportunity to talk about a lot of different things which is you know you you certainly run into dead ends uh in any kind of uh, reporting any story especially a story like this not to say i've ever investigated a story like this but um you know journalism journalism is a great mix of like hope and despair (laughs) we all have such great personal lives right um But I tend to think of this scene like as the, as a bookend to the scene earlier in the movie where um, Woodward, where Redford is talking to Ken Dahlberg. Yes. And, um, you know, he's tracked Dahlberg down. Dahlberg's called him back. You know, he's got him talking. And then, you know, Dahlberg says, you know, I I don't know if I should be telling you this. And Redford closes his eyes. And, (laughs) and any, reporter anywhere knows that feeling it's like thank you thank you God like please just, just talk 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 and you know I mean those are the magic those are the magic words for for any reporter I,
1: I actually I don't know if I should be telling you. I think I mentioned that in the episode that we did on that minute which is when you hear I don't know if I should be telling you this where, even as an entertainment journalist uh, a tangential entertainment journalist as I am hearing that in an interview for many of the, you know, interviews I've ever done, I don't know if I should be telling you this. It's like, Oh baby, this is going to be good. Whatever is yeah, about to be like, said oh, now, this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. And you're,
3: just, you're so grateful to be alive at that very moment. <laughs> and so, and so, and our scene, our scene now is the, it's the mirror image It's the of that where it is the person who wants to talk to you has, could spend all day talking to you and in fact has nothing to tell you. Yes. That's going to be helpful, and um, and so you know, obviously Woodward and Bernstein you know, in that position. The minute they realize they have the wrong woman, um, and that their hope of finally finding someone you know close to the committee who can talk, it's all gone in an instant. And you know, and and suddenly their whole story is in tatters.
1: And it's so funny is that the lack of glamour of being on the phone in the office on the floor. Of the post grinding for every second of that conversation, like, oh, for the love of God, please be this, or please, please, please come through on this. I really want to hear from this person, I really want to get that information. And then coming here to this beautiful staged moment, having tea, like having a tea on this very well ordained apartment. It's very beautiful and put together, and it feels like it is a complete throwback to another time, but almost like.
2: You yeah, know, yeah,
1: genteel and older money, and having a tea, and you know, um, this is a Waspy Woodward's. Like he's he's been around people like this in his whole life, so he seems in his element. And I love just the posture of Hoffman. Like he's 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 never been in, never been sitting on a velvet couch like this. He's like he's just scribbling down the notes and letting Bob sort of lead the way, lead the dance, so to speak. And I just love that. The whole posture of the scene, they see, there's something out of place before you know something's out of place. Like everything's too easy and it feels, right. like, it feels like a cheat if this was the way they got the information. And, and this is so funny is like you don't, there's an implicit thing that's happening in your gut when you're watching this scene like, this is like, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with this. This doesn't make sense. How is everything else been such a grind for every single detail? And someone is a chatty Kathy who wants to just have tea and a biscuit with you and give you everything. It seems so impossible and implausible.
3: Yeah. And it's like, I mean, everyone calls this movie, a detective story, but it's like, it'd be like if you were watching a police thriller or a detective story and you have the, you know, the witness that nobody saw who comes in and claims they've seen everything that, you know, uh, and then can't provide the right details about crime and, um, and, you know, and that is, I mean, the great thing about including that scene uh, is, is showing, you know, I mean, Redford and the company, they were so committed to trying, trying to portray the, the, the lack of glamour, as you put it in the process, and, and the fact that you are going to have a lot of conversations that go, that, no, that go nowhere. I mean, any reporter would ever tell you, I, I don't know what the percentage is of time you spend talking to people that, give, that, that never ends up in any story. Yes. Um, whether you're in politics, Making, government.
1: talking to contacts, checking in on folk, like maintaining relationships in the case that one day you're going to be able to give you one morsel of a nugget of, a, of, of, of that essential bit of information for a story.
3: Yeah. And you just, and you're literally looking for one thing. And like you said that they thought they had found the key, you know, and of course, as we go on to see with, with Jane Alexander's character, you know, the, the truth is much more elusive and that people with, who actually know things are much harder to draw out.
0: Yes. And, and so,
3: um, you know, in this situation, yeah, she was far too solicitous. The setting was far, the setting was wrong. I mean, this doesn't look like somebody who's been helping to cook the books <laughs> you know, no. for, for the Republican party. Um, uh. And, uh, and, and, and as it turns out, right, it's a complete, it's a complete dead end.
1: And I think you, you, you put it so perfectly. It, it does mirror the Dahlberg scene. We've been trained, and this is what's so great about this movie. We've been trained, like these guys are being trained to smell that there's a rat here. But then also, you, you can't know, and this is what's so hard about this project for me and why I get so thrilled when I talk to folk who uh, don't have as close a relationship to it, is there's such a thrill... For me, every time I watch this movie, when they get to the Alexander scene and and the bookkeeper scene and and Hoffman there, because to even get in the door, it's a battle. It's a complete (laughs) battleground. And and so the moment that he's like battling in, you're like, once he's in and you can basically largely see her in silhouette in that doorframe, it's like... Oh God, she knows everything. Like there's just something about the setting, the lighting, her demeanor and, and him being able to read that there's something so important that, that this, you know, crazy manic burn scene we've seen in the entire movie up into this point, just completely settles into that. Like Woodward, you know, very calm, I'm just going to extract this information. I'm going to speak far sl- more slowly than you've heard me speak in the entire film. I think that that's what I love about this scene is it, the, b- the balance of movies and tonal shifts and sort of implicit ways that filmmakers want you to experience a story is just so critical to the alchemy of how a movie affects you. And I think that uh, so many people, and why I'm excited to talk to you about this scene and why I'm excited to talk about this scene just in general is a lot of people would just dismiss this scene as like, oh, it's the red herring scene. And it's like, no, it's important. Because when you hit that bookkeeper scene, which is only six minutes away, it's actually five and a half minutes away, um, when you hit that scene, there's nothing more important. Like there's nothing more important in this whole story than that sequence and what blooms out of, you know, that sort of six, five, six minutes of the movie.
3: Well, what I love about it too, and you mentioned, you know, how, how Hoffman plays Bernstein. Um, and they're clearly, they, they cre- clearly have different approaches to their job. But through the course of the investigation, Bernstein becomes a little more like Woodward. Uh, and, and, and as you say, he becomes a little more measured. He's not so eager to cut corners and yeah. just like write the story. He just, you know, he starts out as a guy who seems to have it all figured out already. He just wants to write the story, the story he has in his head. And Woodward's like, no, you know, we, we, we don't have it. But there's a scene, and I can't remember uh, it, it's close to, it's close to this where they're back in the McDonald's. And suddenly it's Woodward who's saying, we've got it, we've got it, let's go. And it's Bernstein saying, no, 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 we need something else, we need one more, we need. Um, and yeah. so, you know, what, what Bernstein was able to do in this movie is you see that he's a charmer. You know, he's got, he's got people skills in a way that Woodward doesn't, who's more of a blunt instrument. Um, and those people skills are the things that I think that within the Jane Alexander scene, he's got the emotional intelligence at least the way the movie portrays him in a way that woodward is you know woodward comes off in the movie i think you know as he is just someone who just will just work try to outwork outwork the story ask as many questions as he can knock in ten thousand doors where bernstein is a little more you know he's a little more of a work smart guy than a work hard guy and i think that yeah. really pays off it really pays off uh, later, you know, in in that bookkeeper
1: scene. And the and the people skills are important as well, right? So it's like he's he's completely in the scene we're talking about. He's completely out of his element because it's not it doesn't feel natural. It feels very staged, and it's very and you know that it's. I think I have to recall back to like grandmother's houses where you special biscuits and special cutlery and special plates are only brought out for, for special guests, not for just grandkids or or the the immediate family. It's like extended relatives come out and special cutlery comes out and special plates come out and all those sorts of things. Um, you know, again, a very sort of a very sort of throwback thing, but just simply asking for a cigarette, just bumming a cigarette is such a Bernstein in it's, and it's yeah, such yeah. A, like, I just need to bum a cigarette or I just need to, you know, sort of cheekily have a coffee and, 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 and he always, knows he's,
3: he's smart enough he's to know he dog has dog an ally dog. in the sister. Yes. So it's like, I have an ally in the house. So if I play my cards right, I don't piss anybody off. I can get something out of this.
1: And also the guy who bums a cigarette and the guy who flubs a coffee at 9 PM at night He's a guy who also maybe doesn't have the best memory, even though he is whip smart and he does have a great memory. It's like, I just need, I need to take, my memory is just shot. So I just need to, and just those little touches, whereas here he's just sort of authentic. There's a great comparison with him. He's just authentic. He's like, I'm going to take notes because this person just wants to talk to Bob. And that's the great thing I think about Redford's Woodward is he feels more like a sponge, a a sort of a charming sponge. Like people talk at him and he will just consume it all. And it's just these little baby kind of gentle prods and prompts and people who kind of he just puts himself in the position for people to talk at him and around him and he gets lots of information from just being being able to ask the right question um, um, without being sort of tenacious like Bernstein can be um, but I think that yeah this the whole interplay of these guys and how they you know I don't know about you James but e- even in like crummy jobs I've worked there is something cool when you work with people you are like they do something really good that you just haven't got in your tool shed yet or your toolbox rather. And you're like, I'm going to steal that. That's great. Like the, the way yeah, yeah. that that person does that. And I think that there's something underappreciated and not in a malicious way of like, I'm going to steal that person's story. I'm going to steal it. But just like the way that some people approach things or think about things or tackle a problem, you're like, that's really good. If I could have that in my arsenal to draw on that, eventually it's only going to benefit me in a future story.
3: Well, in the key scene, I mean, in terms of their relationship, right, and I'm sure you talked about this, but um, is the the scene earlier in the movie where um, Bernstein starts rewriting Woodward. Yes. Where he's taking his story and rewriting it. And that is that is the critical scene because a lot of reporters in that situation would get pissed off. Yes. And be like, hey, it's my story. I'm going to write it my way. Uh, butt out, you know. Uh, and that that was the critical where where you know Redford where Woodward sublimates his ego, and recognizes the fact that Bernstein can bring something to the table that he, he is a more polished writer. Yes. And maybe he can organize the material in a more effective way. And then and that is that builds the bridge that like that's what leads into their productive relationship, recognizing that they can complement each other.
1: I mentioned it on another podcast. I actually read it aloud, but I and my fr- friend of the show, Sean Burns, who's a terrific Bostonian film critic, uh, shouted this out on Twitter. Carl Bernstein recently wrote a really great piece for CNN, uh, a, a, a political piece, and it's got a hundred nine word lead, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and Sean was like, "Look at Bernstein still being a total." boss writing a hundred nine word flaming leads to stories. Um, you know, uh, as, as he was doing during Watergate, you know, may, maybe not penetrating as much because of the dilution of media, as you talked about, as far as, you know, different outlets and different agendas and, and, and just in general, like different levels of consumption, but man, still a boss, still a florid, terrific writer. Um, and, and, and still, still, still doing terrific writing work to this day. So, um, you know well, you, don't do this job.
3: you don't do this job for the money you don't do the job for the uh for the love so you know you got to get your satisfaction somewhere and if that comes from you know writing a great lead or writing the hell out of a story well that's you know good for you because you need to get something you need to get something out of it man.
1: there's there's got to um, be some self-satisfaction there
3: there's got to be a reason to get out of bed in the morning that's it that's it um you know, one of the other interesting things about this scene cube Blake, is I feel like it—it it, it really is a, a sort of a, a harbinger of um, the disinformation. And- The conspiracy theories that dominate so much of uh of, you know our you know our media world now where it, it's like uh, you know where she she's obviously living in a different reality yes uh than than they are you know and she thinks they've come to they finally come to her door to to, to write about the conspiracy that she lives in her own life you know, and that, you know, and that gets me thinking about, you know, the QAnon people Ugh. and all the different conspiracy theories that we see on the web and, you know, people who just, again, like we're in a position now without, without the kind of institutional media culture that we used to have where, you know, a thousand conspiracy, conspiracy theories bloom. Uh, and, and, and this is, I think, I think this is a precursor for that.
1: I think you're so right. And it's, uh, it's, it's conspiracies have gone mainstream and it seems like at different points in history, it's simmered up, but the media landscape has been able to sort of regulate it to a certain extent. But you know, the challenge is, and this is what sucks is the, the challenge is that just the media landscape at the moment you have, and the the big one is Epstein. And you have the right. and, and everything that's happening with Epstein where I'm sure you would have seen it because you're an online, you, you know, you as an individual or an online entity, you see things simmering up, you see these weird things, you see them being reported on these like maverick outlets and they're saying all this stuff and you're like, you know what? This isn't quite as mad as QAnon. Some of this might actually have legs. Some of it seems to be dodgy. Some of it actually has evidence that, you know, or tendrils of something that can be investigated. And then later on, like, a, like sometimes a decade later, you see that it manifests in the mainstream media. And I think that there's like, not everything is an Epstein story, but I think what's been challenging is that some of them, have bloomed out of like being on these maverick weird sites and then they penetrate the mainstream and they, people realize actually this was a story. This was something that the media for whatever reason didn't want to touch. And then why didn't they want to touch it? It's one of those, you know, everything out of Watergate and JFK did it as well as like that, that, that distrust and that the, the institutional distrust, that started out with politics at this time, then sort of bloomed into let's not trust journalistic institutions because right. media is manipulative. So in this, it's, I think it's still very, it's a very good reflex to be cynical and questionable of any kind of political entity, especially, you know, if you're in a a broadly democratic society, it's good to con- question politics and power and money and entanglement. It's It's a good reflex to have. Um, But, uh, but uh, like, you know, as you talked about with something that Trump did successfully, he he weaponized the concept of him being the story and him being the source. And if you weren't getting it from the source, it was a lie. Even
3: though the White House has, has worked diligently to set itself (laughs) up as, as an information source. And it, you know, if, if, if you're not believing what they're telling you, that's the news media that's getting it wrong, not them. And don't trust them. Don't trust what they say. Only trust what we say. And you know the fact that there has been such an erosion of trust in the media, it it, it does it, it it it's perfect for an environment like this. It, it, you know you can exploit that environment. And so I mean I've been in situations where I've had to disabuse my own daughter of conspiracy theories. She's fifteen. Now she's oh, on the web. She's asking me questions about. Barack Obama and Jeffrey Epstein and, and <laughs> you know, and just stuff you know, she and her friends see on YouTube or on you know uh, on Instagram and um, and we have you know because there's a, a thousand outlets now and a thousand channels and and because the media is so splintered there is no there is no gate function and you can you can argue whether that's good or not you know in the Watergate days we had Water Cronkite we had you know yes. we had the three networks and the nightly news and a and um a press and all white male press mainly um that functioned as the people who decided what to tell you and what not to tell you and there's plenty of stuff they covered up and didn't tell you um it's just you know what we have now is the wild west
1: and and, um but you can get stuck you can get stuck in a rabbit hole like there are folks who like go down YouTube documentary rabbit holes and things that are just produced from a formal and technical level that feel like, like that's the great manipulation of the documentary form, right? Like if you say things in a certain way and you do things in a certain way, you can basically tell people anything and it's really powerful and affecting and can influence them and change their mind about something or really cement in an idea. And it is all, Horseshit. It's all, it's, it's, none of it makes sense. None of it's based on any kind of fact or, or they choose very carefully when to, when to have key facts and then have things that are posing as facts that are next to those things adjacent to them and, and, and edit them together seamlessly. And then they, those things tend to make sense um, for some folk. And I just, yeah, I think there's a, there's a real sort of collective, mode that everyone has to operate with any of those YouTube documentaries that I just don't think a lot of young kids have been trained with yet, which is like documentary cinema is like a great tool is the greatest tool for propaganda in the world. Like cinema is just in general, the greatest tool for propaganda in the world. So like when, when people are, doing these things, you've got to ask, like, who is the person? Who is the outlet? What are they trying to do? Maybe who's funding it? Like, like, and what's their agenda? Like what's the rest of their channel saying, you know, maybe just ask a couple of those key questions. And if you start to see some gaps, then maybe the, how verifiable and accurate and true what these folks are saying on those. YouTube. I, I can't imagine it. You're doing God's work as far as I'm concerned, dissuading people to do that. I'm doing it as an uncle with, you know, 10 and 12 year olds when they want to learn about a topic. I'm like, all right, go listen to this podcast. Go watch this documentary. Listen. Go to this outlet. Maybe read this book. That's what you need to do. That's where you need to start. They're a good starting point for things you need to learn. Don't listen to this person. Don't listen to that. Don't watch this news outlet. This is not where you need to get this from. Go to this. Go to this other more viable outlet. Don't watch YouTube documentaries. Go to Netflix. At least. At least.
3: And you do. You have to be a more active consumer. Uh, of the news, and you have to almost think about it as as um, evaluating products, you know, yes. for reliability and who can you trust and who can't you trust, and then in a way, I mean, I think that's preferable to everybody being a passive consumer and just accepting whatever the institutional take is. But it requires more effort. You do have to do, you know, you have you have to find out ways to find accurate information, and um, and it's it's harder. I and mean, there's so much noise. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing with the COVID pandemic is a real a real struggle at times for science, you know, a set of what we consider to be a set of scientific principles. Yes. Um, yielding at times to opinion and political passion. And um, you know, we can't be we can't be in a position where we consider objective scientific facts a matter of opinion. And,
1: uh, you know, I just, I just think also what, what is crazy and this is the whole, how things are consumed the other day. I think I can't remember which state it was in the United States, whether it was Florida or something hit one of the largest, uh, instances of new cases in any part of the world in a single day. And on the same day, and this is like my curated news feed of like, Publications that I subscribe to or trust, and you know, following different individuals such as self or you know reporters that I trust, and in that same feed on that same day, as they were talking about that spike, New Zealand announced that there were no instances of COVID nineteen in the country, <laughs> like in the in the whole northern South Island, they'd squashed it. And oh, in
3: Germany, I think Germany has
1: yeah. under a thousand. Yeah, it's some some cra- and in Australia, I think. I think in Australia at the moment we've got more active because um, of a recent couple of spikes um, in, in Victoria, one of our s- Southern States. Um, but in New Zealand, even Australia, looking over New Zealand, New Zealand have full stadiums. They love rugby in New Zealand. Like it's their bread and butter. And like there's full <laughs> rugby stadiums of video, video of all these folk like in a stadium, there's no COVID restrictions and they're all just like people arm in arm watching rugby and like, you do everything you can to like not cry. Like the other day I went to a cinema for the first time in however many months and I sat with like two of my dearest friends and we were watching some classic movies together. We watched uh watched Predator, we watched Jaws, we watched a Space. Odyssey It was a little repertory theater. Oh, fantastic. Watched them all on the big screen together. And like you have to do everything but like when, you know, when Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers' arms clasp in Predator and you see their biceps squeeze and the crowd cheered, I was like, I, I, I had to not cry because it was like, oh, community, people, like, this is.
2: That's this no, is partial to no, no, no Action Jackson. <laughs> <laughs>
1: look, Carl, the Carl Weathers canon is important. is an important discussion, um,
3: but not maybe. you should all. do Action, action Jackson <laughs> minute <laughs> by minute. That should, be, that should be your next project. Oh, really.
1: uh, look. It's certainly the first time it's been recommended and actually it would might make a fascinating miniseries because I love me some Carl Weathers, man. Love me some well,
3: Carl Well, yeah. I mean, taking apart <laughs> an 80s film, Ugh. Uh, just given the very, specific, the, 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 the very specific nature of 80s films, I think would be a, a valuable exercise.
1: That, that's at some All point. All the excess. Oh, and- the the excess, the funding, like looking at... I, I love especially 80s action films. Have a complete, beautiful dialogue with one another internationally. You like watch these great black exploitation movies, and you see Bond try and make a black exploitation Bond, and you know, <laughs> you know, it's and 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 then they try and then they're communicating with space films because there's obviously the, the omnipresence of the space opera and star Wars. So it's like people are trying to make space action. It's a great, it's a fun genre. It's a fun one. That, 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 that might be a mini series uh, somewhere down the track A uh, fun, the fun dialogue between exploitation and action cinema just in general around the world. Cause there's some really good ones, but yeah, look, you know, that I think that that's, what's so crazy to me is that I think what universally we've been told in films or what universally we've hoped, um, the, the presumption that we've had, as you know, just citizens of the world, is that when there is something that is universally, as universally uh, verifiable, that has an impact on people, that people can accept that okay, we're going to have restrictions, we're going to restrict it, and you see other countries that like eradicate it or basically limit it to the most minor of number of people, and then. They can continue on with their society, um, and even in Australia recently, the recent surges and spikes are just people being irresponsible. There was like one guy, one security guard at a nightclub in Victoria, like shagged like thirty people and gave <laughs> like a hundred people this goddamn virus. And it's like, man, put it away. Like just
3: there's her there's her 80s <laughs> <of 80s. laughs>
1: Talk about Action Jackson. We brought it right back around.
3: Um,
1: uh, but but you know, like I I what I. The war on facts in a political context, there's never been a better topic to like have scientific verifiable facts where the where the bottom line is death, is people
3: dying. But we see that, we, know, we see the roots of all of it in the all the presidents and then, where you know, they begin to attack the post, they attack the post credibility, uh, they suggest Ben Bradley has an agenda. I mean, not, nothing in Trump's playbook is new. No. I and mean, this has been going on for a long time. Um, and, and it was, the idea is to, hey, Dave Chappelle calls a, it
1: he, pull white people's greatest hits is, uh, which I'm <laughs> very, funny.
3: But it's, it's, you know, you destroy the messenger's credibility. I mean, that is the, that's the oldest trick in the book. Right. So, um, I mean, it, that was, you know, that so much was planted, the seeds of that, you know, um, what, what I find fascinating is that one of the things that led to Nixon's resignation was that final tape, where you know people, the, the American public got to see the real Nixon. Basically, they heard the profanity and they heard you know uh, just. And, and again, we were talking about common standards of behavior. He had violated <laughs> some sort of some sort of ideal that we hold for presidents, right? And um, and Trump, you know. The fast, one of the interesting things about him is that he was elected as a known commodity. I mean, you know, people knew, people had lived with, had, they knew who Donald Trump was for 30 years. Um, and even the stuff that bre- that broke over the course of the campaign, the coal mining and the Access Hollywood tape. I mean, it shows you how we have, we have grown to accommodate huge, you know uh, variations in behavior for our our presidents, and so you know where where the American public or one portion of the American public were was, was shocked to find Nixon to be so so venal.
1: Yes, um,
3: Trump was elected on the very premise of that, that a person. You know, I mean, it was like <laughs> I, yeah, we know what we're getting, we don't care. I, I
1: I think it was one thing that was actually talked about in. Another, perhaps another episode, which is but just the the concept that someone at some point who received that access Hollywood tape thought, "I have this, this is my watergate this,
3: like, this
1: is my watergate, and look at what like i and 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 I think we could probably both agree it's like there does not seem to be despite now we're seeing the the erosion as you put it of his of his Base, but there has not yet been a uh, you know a, a, a smoking a smoking gun in this entire presidency that seems to be able to bring him down or even have the Republicans come around on him because that's the other thing, you know I, I think the other challenge is the Republican Party the Repub- Repub- Republican identity has become so intrinsically Trumpian that it's like it doesn't seem possible that there's other good when there absolutely plausibly has to be just by definition there has to be other good people that are more like a classical sort of conservative candidate that are in the party in the wings going, this guy's unacceptable. Can't we do something? (laughs) Can't can't we do something?
3: Well, you know, there was a, there was a belief at some point during the Mueller investigation that that might happen or impeachment where Republicans, you know, might rise up and say, Hey, you know, this is our opportunity. Um, But you know, the truth the truth of the matter is, is as long as he's popular with, with party and he's tremendously popular mm. uh, among Republicans still, although, that, as I said, that's beginning to wane. Um, it's too much of a risk to criticize the president. And um, in fact, uh, yeah, I, you know, like I said, I don't know when this is going to air. Um, but Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, lost a primary in Alabama last night. He was trying to get his old Senate seat back. Yes. And he couldn't even make it. He couldn't even make it to the general election because he was viewed as being insufficiently supportive of Trump. And um, and so, you know, if that's going to be the environment in the party, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to to take him on. Now, that being said, politics is a blood sport. And if we go into September, October, he's down 10. And then, even and of course, you know, you will see Republicans starting to distance themselves, trying to run um, races that don't mention him or say Republicans saying they don't agree with everything he does. And if he if he loses uh, in November, you'll see the party. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen, but it'll split along lines of people who want to go backwards, forwards, carry on Trump's policies, some who don't um but there will be a reckoning of some
1: kind it's going to be it's going to be unfathomable uh, i can't i can't i can't imagine what that's going to be like if they if they do. i mean i can't imagine what it's going to be like to have another to know that for four more years donald trump is going to be the president of the united states nor can i imagine what it's going to be like for the republican party and the base and the people who ultimately supported him to try and find relevance again like how, how do you yeah. find relevance <laughs> when you become a splinter cell of like you know, sort of centrist, centrist, as you said, and then Trumpian and then far right.
3: <laughs> like. Far well, you know, um, we could ask that question in 76. Yeah. Um, when Ford lost to Carter and the Republican brand was completely destroyed. Yes. And uh, Reagan was elected four years later. So uh, politics are material and, uh, you know, All it takes is the right person to come along and capture the public's imagination. And suddenly you go from, I mean, I'll I'll tell you a story, Blake, that um, I was sent to Wisconsin very late in the 2016 campaign to write basically a a, a postmortem for the Republican Party. You know, the the idea was that Hillary Clinton was going to win, Trump was going to lose, you know, Trump had, had, Made all these uh, outrageous statements in the course of his campaign, and now uh, the Republican Party was going to have to pick up the pieces. And how they were they going to do that? And then we all know that that story never got written because Trump won. And then suddenly it was like, how did the Democrats pick up the pieces because they just lost to Donald Trump? And so uh, I mean, that is one of the uh, for you know for me, I think one of the very interesting things about politics is that it you know nothing lasts forever, and um, You know, politicians come along and they look like they're going to have, they're going to cast a gigantic shadow uh, for for years. And then, you know, there's the new flavor of the month comes along and everything is upended. Uh, And, um, you know, we were talking in 2016, because when again, when it looked like Clinton was going to win. Well, okay, well, the country is changing demographically. So will Republicans ever be relevant? And then a Republican wins by just, you know, hitting just the right notes and the right voters, and, and and building a coalition that that was in the face of those changes. But it, you know, um, so I mean, this is a long way of saying that we don't know. You know, uh, if, if Biden were to win in November, who's to say a Republican doesn't win four years from now?
1: As long as it's not him.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, think- I wouldn't rule that out either. I wouldn't rule out <laughs> him running again. <laughs> either. So it's like, uh, um, I mean, uh,
1: because, he- sorry, clarify that for me. If he does get, if he loses an election, he can go again, but he can only go for four years, a single term presidency.
3: That's right. He can, he can. Has that, ever grow- happened?
1: And- Has that ever happened?
3: Yeah. Grover Cleveland did it. Wow. Uh, you remember Grover Cleveland, don't you?
1: No. <laughs> Not at all. 19th century,
3: he ran. Uh, he won a first term, lost, and then ran again. He's the only president to ever serve non consecutive terms. Oh, yeah. So it can be done. And we see governors do it uh, in America. They'll sometimes come back and, and have a second act. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, usually when you lose in presidential politics, you're finished. Yes. And you know, the party moves on, and they don't want to relitigate the past. So, um, but with Trump, all things are possible. (laughs) There's
1: there's an amazing commencement address from JFK that I think I've been thinking of just as we've, we've been talking this whole time. And this, uh, I won't read the whole address and I might actually, it might introduce the show, but that concept of we all breathe the same air, we all cherish our children's future and we are all mortal that, that those three things of like, it feels like in the time of COVID-19, mortality is like, who cares? It's like, emerald mortal, but who gives a shit? It's like, it's like we're all young. We're not old. Who cares? It's just old people and immun- immunocompromised. And like, we all cherish our children's future, you know, un- uh, unless, unless our children are young and we're old and they don't care about what we're doing because we don't care about what their future and we all breathe the same air, like even breathing the same air you know, people, are people can't wear a mask. It's because it's infringing on their freedoms. And in, in Australia, you know, we haven't, we haven't, uh, had to go to that, that level of lockdown in my state just yet. Um, it's definitely not out of the question. Um, but I just also think that, man, it, it, if we have to, I'm, i'm in, I'm interested to see because i don't think we're above it by any stretch of the imagination i'm interested to see those people who just flat out refuse to put on a mask and flat out refuse to think about the community that surrounds them and that's part of what it is like this whole community transmission is the challenge it's not it's not about you not necessarily being able to cope with it or being healthy enough to to battle through it it's about who you know and who you love and what compromising health situation they may have—it's—it's it's really, really, really interesting.
3: Well, our friend, the Garfinkels woman in our scene, uh, is the kind of person who wouldn't wear a mask. Oh, hundred percent. And would not believe, would not believe the virus could harm her. And um, and that's—I mean, that is. She's
1: and she wouldn't. Have, she, wouldn't she wouldn't hang around in any circles that would get the virus either.
3: No, no, she'd be, be, her tea set gives that away. uh, (laughs) um, And especially in the DC of 1974 or, you know, or 72, I guess when the movie takes place, but, um, which was a very divided polarized. uh, Yeah.
1: You only have to to start reading fear and loathing in the campaign trail. be a chapter in and (laughs) the, the, the portrait of, the por- the portrait of Washington D.C. as painted by Hunter S. Thompson in his Gonzo journalistic stylings. It reads like it's uh the the city in um Escape from New York is basically what Washington D.C. reads like in 1972.
3: You know, and if you if you like indulge me for a second, one of the things that really um also fascinates me about this movie is I really I'm I, I'm, I really um am interested in films that are made very close to an event in history that they're trying to portray. Yes. And, and even like, you know, like going back to films like Casablanca or even, you know, a war film like 30 Seconds Over Tokyo. I, you know, it was fascinating to think of Hollywood making movies about World War Two when they didn't know the outcome. Yes. You now, they didn't know if the Nazis were going to take over the world. They One didn't of- know if the American, you know, if the United States was going to be overcome or, or Britain or um, and still trying to provide a product in that environment. And. um
1: to be or not to be with Jack Benny. The comedy oh, is one of the greatest comedy in, comedy, comedy in the
3: middle of a, of a world war.
1: In the middle of the war that is broadly about an egomaniac who's, you know, uh, ultimately so many Hitler illusions in the film that aren't, that aren't explicit, but are very, very defined. And it's like, this is a guy making a comedy about world war two. <laughs> in World War II, finding, World a way, two, yeah. finding a way to make it about this. Uh, incredible.
3: And, and so, you know, we know that, um, that Redford pushed Woodward Birdseed to develop their book and then develop the book, you know, around the idea of their reporting. Um, and this all took place in 73. Um, I think um, the book finally came out in 74, in the, in the summer of 74, and by that time, the, you know, the film was already, uh, you know, cranking up. William Goldman was writing the screenplay. And, you know, the amazing thing about it, Blake, is Nixon had not yet resigned. Nope. Right? So, I mean, and obviously... <laughs>
1: it didn't quite have their ending.
3: <laughs> yeah, right? They didn't have their ending. No. And um, it's a very different movie if Nixon doesn't quit. And um, The different United States of America. Right. Like you, you need that. You need that final sentence. And you know, whenever you do your final minute, like, because I've had, I've had people who've seen this movie and have complained because they feel like the drama is in the second half of the Watergate story, not in the first half of the Watergate story. Like, why yes. don't we see the, you know, why don't we see Nixon yelling at the JFK painting? You know? <laughs>
1: That's for all of us stone and no one else.
3: James. <laughs> and no one else. <laughs> um, <laughs> So you know, the idea that they, that, that redford and and, and uh, Kula, they went forward with this project without even knowing the ultimate fate of Richard Nixon is fascinating to me. and um, And they still felt like the story was powerful enough to tell, and they didn't need it. but as, I think as it turns out historically they did need it because you need it you know, for all the door knocking that we're talking about. You need to know that pays off in something bigger than getting a few aides indicted, yes. right? Or finding you know some uh, intelligence gathering scheme going on on the, on the part of the Republicans. You need to know that there was for something involving the Republic. That's why you have that great Ben Bradley speech at the end to remind you of the stakes. And um, and and, and, also, so it's just-
1: and also you're 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 contextualizing it from a political standpoint, but also I think that that's one of the one of the vacancies that I see in sort of corporate malfeasance, where you see that a CEO resigns and they leave, and you go, "Maybe it's because I've watched all the president's men in an, unc- an incalculable amount of times at this point, uncountable, incalculable It's like not a single leader at the top is completely complicit for all the, the bad things. There is a culture. That happens. And what's so wonderful about Watergate is in the following the money, these guys meticulously track the key players and key decision makers that manifested that ultimate culture within the white house, within the Republican party uh, in that time at that moment. And then they are excised. So in some ways it's liberating for the Republican party because all those people get taken out of it. Um, So yeah, I just, I I feel like uh, every, every knocked on door, every individual that they're running up to, and then ultimately Nixon himself, it's a, thrilling, it's a thrilling exercise to go through. It's a thrilling exercise to go through. And, and I think sometimes, you know, some people have had that criticism as well. It's like, oh, would, it would be great to see Nixon. It's like, no, sometimes history is more powerful than the ending of a movie. Like if you, if, you, if, yeah. you can, if you can just pave the way for history to bookend the film, I think that the power is all there. Like it leaves you with, it, with a feeling that's so hard to recreate.
3: And the brilliance—the brilliance of the movie—are the scenes where, you know, Woodward's typing away while everyone else is watching television. Um, while other events are happening while Nixon's being renominated. You know, and they and, and and they show something as pedestrian as the Washington Post being delivered to the White House. I mean, they—that's all they have to do. Yes. Is to, you know, is to say, look. You know, they this this little this. I mean, that's why I'm in journalism, right? I mean. This entity being delivered to your front door is gonna bring down this president. And we all know it, and that's the great thing in watching it is that something that looks very humble, the thing that the the thing that's delivered to your doorstep in the morning is actually, you know, this tremendous defender of American values. And um, I mean, in a way it makes All the President's Men one of the most patriotic movies in film history because it is about upholding constitution, the first amendment, you know, separation of powers, everything that we say we believe in about this country and you know, and it's put to the test and we survive, right? And, um, and you compare it with something, let's just say like the big short, which is a movie I really enjoyed. Yes. And to your point. Um, where yeah, hey, these guys are the smartest. They figured out this, you know. They figured out the kind of moves going to collapse, and you know these mortgage-backed securities were fraudulent. But CEOs didn't go to jail. There's no, you know, there's no final scene where you see anybody paying a price.
1: Yeah, the, I mean, Adam, Adam McKay. Adam McKay uses a uses the the technique of all the president's men on the inverse. Which is that no one went to jail, and right, also, yeah. and and also the very thing that these guys invented that caused this entire crisis—they're doing, they're already kind of half dabbling at doing okay. again, and none of the regulations that should have completely ironed this out ran the table—it's now, now here we go, pay it off, and it's yeah, one yeah, of, the, yeah, it's, yeah. and and e- even as recent, you know, it was a really good John Stewart interview actually on Joe Rogan where he talked about it's like. He's like, when I was, John Stewart's talking about when he was on his show and he was talking to some of the chief economists in the, at the time going, okay, so you're paying the banks to, to keep these mortgages, right? And they're like, yes. And like, he goes, why wouldn't you, and surely it would cost less money, go see all the bad mortgages that are out there and just pay them off. Because then you're basically paying off all the bad mortgages so they're only good mortgages and then that saves the economy. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you do that? And they're like, oh, we can't do that. And he's, yeah. and and I and, well, I laughed out loud because Joe Rogan goes, "No, that makes too much sense. Why would they do that?" And that's exactly what I, I was like, "Oh, well, that doesn't that make sense? Like, you just pay them, pay off all the bad mortgages. There are no bad mortgages, and then the other people, you help them if they've lost their jobs or whatever. You do that for a, a tactical amount of time, and then there's a bit of restoration. You punish the people that got it there. You re-engineer what they're doing. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you that the big, the big short also made hot on the heels of its topic." Um, doesn't give us any of the satisfaction. And I think Adam McKay is giving you a massive, you know, that's him flexing his muscles there and giving you a warning. Cause I feel like right. he, wants you to be,
3: he wants you to walk away mad. not satisfied.
1: Yes. Yes. He, he wants to say, he wants to say that, that, that change hasn't happened. <laughs> see, all got, see all the work these guys did to show how stupid everyone was and to, and to call out that this is bad. They were right. You know, but, but unfortunately it's like that middle scene with Bradley where they said he, they nominate Jade Hoover for the, F, for the FBI director for life. And he says, tell Brian Bradley, <laughs> fuck you. He's <It's> like, he's <laughs> some, like, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's fine to be right, but you know, but it probably wasn't best for the country that I was right. And, and so, and so I think that that's McKay is like giving us that level of dissatisfaction um, at the end of the big short. Cause it's just insane.
3: And so, some bo- somebody at some point, some movie maker is going to try to get this era down on some level. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what form that would ever take, but this has been so calamitous and tumult- and tumultuous for years that it's going to be it's going to be represented in cinema. Um, and uh, I'm you know I'm interested to see how you get something you know when the when we're living in in vivid detail um, every minute, as you say, uh, with you know Trump being the central figure in our lives, um, central figure in the media's lives, how do you dramatize something that you feel like has already been played out on screens every day for four years?
1: Well, I hope that there's a I hope that there's a Robert Redford that's uh, got the the clout to to push it. And I hope that there's I think there's some exceptionally talented Alan Pacula esque workman like great actors, directors and maybe there's a Gordy Willis of our generation that can be out there a Prince <laughs> Darkness that can kind of make it happen. I don't know. I, I I I don't think it's I I don't know I don't envy the task, but I think they've got a I think if anything this movie is about starting small and, and pushing the people who've done the work. And the challenge is, you know, uh, I think, uh, I, th- I think when when it, when it's all over, what's going to be even more interesting if we see a text and can sort of see all the see all the earmarks of something like an all the president's man and a prestige something that doesn't feel like a lifetime movie because the challenge is the knife's edge is am I a shitty lifetime movie or am I all the president's man, the social <laughs> network, the big short, you know, Casablanca, because the The nice edge is treacherous. You can fall into lifetime movie very easily.
3: well, that's where Eric Roberts plays trump
1: <laughs> 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 Oh God, there's already that uh Brendan Gleason Trump movie that's coming uh which looks bad uh, oh, a TV God. show there's something and it, look I, I don't we're', not, we're never going to top Eric Roberts playing trump uh in this one so um James Oliphant, look. Mate, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm so glad that we got to hook up and uh, this has been such a fun conversation. I thank you for what you're doing. Um, I'm looking forward to reading your continued coverage of everything that's unfolding. And uh, um, as we as we ramp up towards November, I'd love to have you on again. I'll find you, oh, another, absolutely. I'll, I'll find you another newsroom minute that'll make you feel like it's in there, but I, I feel like we've got so much more to say. But I just, I just cannot top the, the pinnacle of Eric Roberts' as Trump in my mind. It's going to distract me for the rest of the day. Thank you so much for being a part of the show.
3: It's been great, Blake. Thanks so much.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, James Oliphant. What a absolute gentleman. What a great journalistic mind. What a great political mind. And now I'm so glad to say is absolutely and positively a friend of the show. We're going to have him back on at James Oliphant is where you can find him on Twitter. James, obviously the normal spelling, but O-L-I-P-H-A-N-T um, is where you can sort of jump off onto Reuters and all of his other stuff. Um, it was a real pleasure to talk to him. I can't wait to talk to him again. If you can, please subscribe, rate, Review the show. Um, uh, It's a huge help um, if you can do that. Um, And uh, just anything you can do like that and sharing it around to folks. And if you've been a listener for a long time or you're a new listener and you dig it, share it around the place, but rate and review it if you can. It is a monstrous help to us on the show. It attracts more attention to the show for folks who are out there who may be interested in it and who may be following other shows that are like ours. That would be a massive help. Thank you so much. Guys, I'm Blake Howard. It's one Blake Minute on Twitter, at Pod on Twitter for the show, oneheatminute.com is where you can find everything else that we're doing. And if you do have a little bit of extra scratch right now during COVID, we would love and appreciate a donation. You can find the links in the description of this show on whatever podcast app you're using. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on another great episode this week. Great lineup this week. One of our best ever. Um, James, just another addition to it. And uh, And tomorrow, another great episode. Thanks for listening.